The Guardian. Welcome to the Guardian Sustainable Business Podcast, supported by BT. I'm Joe Confino. In this programme, we ask, is big data a friend or foe of sustainability? How will it determine the future of our cities and supply chains? We'll be debating big data and how it will impact our environment, health and privacy in just a moment. With me in the studio today are Toby Miller, co-author of Greening the Media, Anna Crow, a policy advisor for Privacy International, Hugh Jones, managing director of advisory at the Carbon Trust, and on the line from the very snowy US is Angel Tsu, project director at the Centre for Environmental Law and Policy at Yale University. Before we come to our panel, let's start with the possibilities opened up by the era of big data. Gathering information about the way we behave can help identify very real problems, from making better use of our resources to tackling climate change. Neil Dunn is Chief Sustainability Officer for the BT Group. Earlier this week, reporter Hannah Fern sat down with Neil to discuss potential uses for big data. So as we start to aggregate social data, environmental data, commercial data all together, and apply certain constraints and parameters to those data sets. For example, the Nest thermostat, which uh, uh, Google bought uh, a couple of weeks ago, that is a learning system. So that is capable of looking at your zip code and then understanding what the weather patterns are in your local area and making smart decisions on your behalf around how it is going to manage your home and your your energy profile and your energy use based on what it's seeing from from the external environment. I think that is the very, very start of something that is going to be absolutely transformative. Where I think we can take this is to a place where consumers, people will be able to set the profile by which they want to live. That could be one planet living, it could be low carbon living, you know, you could decide that you want your shopping basket to be only seasonal, only local. And the complexity of that decision then can be reflected in all of the different utilities into your home. So you've got a learning system like Nest or Passive Systems is a very good example here in the UK of another kind of similar type product and service where you can manage that complexity away from the consumer, but allow a lot of these devices to start working together ubiquitously to manage down, you know, the impact of of your life uh, on the environment, but also really connect with your values. I think this is the key thing that if we accept the principle that we all own our own data and it the onus is is on brands then to show us how they can create value if we open that data up to them. So, for example, at the moment, you might decide that you're going to, you know, install British Airways app on your iPhone. And you probably trust British Airways are not going to spam you and sell you a flight to Burkina Faso. You're never going to take on the back of having that information. They know, you know, where you are if you set your sharing preferences. Um, and they also can see, you know, kind of what you're interested in at any particular point in time. But by being able to take the time to really understand that I, for example, would really care about knowing if there was a circular economy product available in Nike Town as I'm walking past the store there in in Oxford Street, I get a little alert that pops up on my phone that tells me to come in, meet a designer, see this new circular economy product. I can then work online with that designer 
designer to customize it to my own style, my own size, have it delivered to my home. This is trust-based, values-based marketing, all being enabled on the back of big data. The key word here is trust. If we start to use big data to spam people, the first thing that happens is they shut down. They opt out of that way of living. They delete the app. They unsubscribe from the list. So the onus is really on brands to make sure that they are able to really understand who they are dealing with from a customer perspective and make sure they're able to create better ways of living on the back of that insight. For all the advocates of big data who believe it can help really tackle these problems, there are critics and those critics say that the sheer amount of data and how it is stored in data centres which are incredibly energy hungry uh, is doing more damage to the environment than than the good that the data can do. What would you say to those critics? So I think a couple of years ago, there was really a lot of criticism of ICT around being responsible for roughly about 2% of carbon emissions globally. But since the Smart 2020 report, there was a kind of a growing awareness amongst NGOs, businesses and governments that actually ICT can almost be like another member of the clean tech movement that was not really being considered to the same extent. So ultimately, our net good ambition, and we baselined this in May last year, revealed that on the back of a portfolio of about £2.3 billion, we have saved about 1.01 to 1 in terms of how much carbon is saved versus our entire value chain. Um, So there's slightly less carbon being abated on the back of our business model as it currently stands. But our net good strategy says we want to save three times as much as the entire impact of our value chain. That was Neil Dunn of BT Group talking to Hannah Fern. Toby Miller, let me come to you first. Neil's very uh, optimistic about the future of big data. Do you agree with him? Well, first of all, I should say that BT is probably one of the exemplary instances of institutions in this field that have really tried to green what they do. And I say that knowing that they are our sponsor, but they're not paying me anything. That said, I'm worried at the fact that Neil emphasises the idea of being a consumer and doesn't really talk about the two other key categories of person involved in this, that is citizen and worker. And it seems to me that the citizen and the worker are the key subject categories, the key individuals, the key people that we need to ponder because it's their lives as workers and as inhabitants of a space that are often left out when we think about in particular the environmental consequences of the whole domain of media and communications. And that's something that's been forgotten, not just before or after the 2020 report that Neil referred to, but actually over generations. And in particular, since the so-called information or knowledge society, where again and again, we're told, as if we were blissfully ignorant to the point where we believe it, ipso facto, that this is a post-smokestacks domain, that the industry of The Guardian, or ITV, or Sky, or BT, is magical. It's magical because it occurs in a cloud. It's not like manufacturing. It's not like agriculture. It's not like mineral extraction. It's not dirty or polluting or dangerous. It's beautiful and essentially ephemeral because of the way that clouds are natural and come and go, make rain and then depart. But in fact, most of the clouds are still powered right around the world by the dirtiest coal-based energy imaginable. And if you go back to the history 
of the media from the book through to the old fat screen analogic television or today's thin screen digital television. The amount of carbon that is burnt in order to generate them, sustain them and operate them and then their impact as electronic waste after their lives is absolutely extraordinary and not really factored into a lot of our discussions adequately. And, and how do you think we need to change our attitudes? What, what do you think is going to change this idea from it's clean to the fact that an understanding that actually taking the media and the guardians looked at this in, in detail that actually digital can produce more emissions than, than a paper product? Absolutely. I mean, we've still not got enough science done by NGOs or by academics or by corporations to establish once and for all whether or not it is less of a carbon impact to use your iPad to read the Grawny ad, sorry, the Guardian in the morning, or in fact to have the Grawny ad, sorry, the Guardian delivered to your front door. None of that is yet absolutely clear, nor do we yet understand what we need to do in order to halt the incredible kind of gas-guzzling tendencies of the data centres or farming services that are the bases for how we get do our Google searches and how we stream our Netflix movies and so on, namely these massive data centres that are littered around the world that are using, using incredible amounts of energy. We need to do a lot more research. We need to involve a lot more non-government organisations and workers involved in manufacturing, in using and in then disposing of these appliances. We need to think about the gadgets that we have in our pockets very much in terms of how they relate to these enormous gas guzzlers and how they might themselves come from maybe 15 or 20 countries where they've been assembled, where there are regular appalling infringements of human rights. Angel, Sue, I just want to come to you because we've heard about the sort of the risks and the problems with with big data but i mean how do you see the sort of benefits outweighing the environmental risks where where do you sit on this Absolutely. So at the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, we've been working for around the last 15 years to aggregate national global data sets to evaluate how countries are performing on environmental policies and global environmental targets. And what we found is that the data are just lacking. They, it's very shocking. Many of the environmental issues that we want to evaluate, such as global recycling rates, municipal waste recycling, solid waste management, toxic exposures, for example, there simply not, doesn't exist enough data to even begin to evaluate what the challenges are and how well policies are functioning functioning to reduce these impacts on for human health and also for ecosystems. And so what we see is that we can't rely on governments that have very strapped budgets and have very limited financial resources to gather the data that we really need to be able to push forward the sustainability agenda. So I, I absolutely agree with Toby that there needs to be more cooperation from multiple actors, not just business, but also government, non-government organizations and citizens to contribute to developing the big data that we will absolutely need in the future in order to push forward the sustainability agenda. And Angel, just spell out what, what are the potential benefits? You talk about where we need to get to, but let's say if we had all that information, what would it allow us to do differently? So I think that being able to make better decisions with respect to managing scarce resources, being able to understand um, environmental baseline scenarios and contexts that affect the bottom line of, of businesses operating within those countries and, and, those, and operating within those contexts. So I think um, improved decision making, being able to track progress towards goals, being able to identify best practices and leaders and laggards in industry, I think all of those are, are reliant upon having solid information and 
analytically rigorous data by which to to base those um, decisions upon. Great, thank you. Um, Hugh Jones from the Carbon Trust, coming to you. Business can be very efficient in terms of driving change. They're very good at using data. Where, where do you see business and also cities in terms of actually using this information to drive change? Where are we on this journey? Yeah, that, thank you very much. Uh, well, at the Carbon Trust, for 12 years, we've worked closely with business on uh, climate change, on carbon, and also on broader resource efficiency. And there is still, as the previous speakers have said, there is still a, a lot more data to be applied to the question of big data. So, for example, just to come back to the point about uh, about the cloud and about data centres, th- there are real problems with the environmental impact of data centres. However, there is, as uh, Niall said at, at the beginning from BT, there, there are also uh, positive enabling effects. But actually the problem has to be broken down and it comes down to the powering of data centres, it comes down to the physical design, whether the data centres are, uh, are sort of ergonomically designed with the right type of coolants. And actually a lot of it comes down to the, to the virtualization, the logic, the setup. So you can have a data centre that's over-configured and has got too many backup servers and it's a net bad you can have a data centre that's really optimised and it's a net good. So the, the point I'm trying to make there is uh, th- this whole area is in itself worthy of, of deep study. And a lot of the best organisations have already been doing that study. So companies such as BT, such as O2, uh, companies such as Google, they know really pretty well what the, the true impacts of, uh, of their activities are. And the best ones of them are taking steps to um, t- to mitigate those. I'd just like to point out two other areas of big data and sustainability, if you like. One of these is, uh, which hasn't been referred to yet, is the, the supply chain. And actually, the supply chain is where big data can really shine a light on our impacts on the planet in a way that the traditional way of doing business never has done. Companies are very, very adept at understanding their own operations, their own efficiencies. They don't really have visibility once they get more than one or two tiers down the supply chain. And some of these supply chains are very, very complex. So data enables a car manufacturer to see that products and services go around the world sometimes two or three times to six or seven plants in five countries before they end up in the car. There's some really counterintuitive activities that go on because procurement traditionally has been done entirely on a capital cost basis and not on a lifetime cost. So by looking at the full environmental effects, typically in carbon emissions terms, but also in water use terms, and it's important where the water is used, data can actually help companies to really plan their supply chains for the greater good. And then you asked about cities. Um, Again, like with all of these things, there are risks and there are great opportunities. But in terms of city design, let's face it, more than half the population already lives in cities, and that's going to massively increase to, to, I believe, 70% by mid-century. There are whole areas such as delivery of smart transport systems, smart healthcare, healthcare to the home, delivery of smart energy systems, even delivery of perishable food, for example, to communities, which can be greatly improved through cities which are, um, if you like, hooked up in the right way to, to the network, where individuals' preferences can, in a, in a benign way, be, uh, be plugged into the supply chain. So I see a great future, actually, for big data in smart cities. It's not just environmental sustainability that's going to be could be placed at risk. Obviously, we've got large volumes of personal information, and we know already that when it's placed in the wrong hands, it can put sort of populations at risk. Technology is a duality; it can produce good and also uh, the opposite. So, Anna Crow, I just want to come to you. What what actually are your worries about the potential misuse of these very very large and influential data sets? 
Well, I think first it's useful to have some clarity around um, what is meant by the term big data. So this is going to include things like um, mobile location data, uh, online, online searches, um, satellite images, data sets that are available in the public, for example, that have been released by the government. And the whole idea of big data is that you use these data sets to be able to predict human behaviour, to uncover new correlations. And as the discussion has shown, some of these predictive abilities are going to improve people's lives, um, help advance the sustainability agenda. But from our perspective, there are certainly dangers associated with linking together data sets. One of the key dangers is when you have an anonymised data set that you may be able to de-anonymise that data set. Uh, so, for example, there was a study recently of a mobile data location data set of 1.5 million individuals. Um, and researchers were able to uniquely identify 95% of the individuals within that data set, just with four points in space and time. And they could even identify 50% of those people with just two points in space and time. And this is in a very, in a very data-rich environment, um, like we see here in the UK. Releasing or using data that appears anonymised could actually produce a situation where personal data is being made available without the person releasing that data actually knowing that that's happening. There was another example where a health database, an anonymised health database, was released and researchers were actually able to identify the governor of Massachusetts individually within that uh, data set through matching it with a voters list. So one of these key dangers is de-anonymisation, thinking that you're releasing data for the public good but in fact you're revealing very sensitive personal information about people. Apart from that, I think that there is a more general issue around data being equated with truth, that data is going to tell us the truth about a situation when it can be deeply flawed. Um, it may be massively unrepresentative of people. So in the developing world, for example, only 31% or around 30% of people are online. So if you're making decisions based on those 30%, it's necessarily exclusionary. You also have, in the business context, I suppose you would call them invasive marketing techniques. So in 2012, it was revealed that the US megastore Target, where you can buy anything from toothpicks to whatever you might like to think, had been using their own data set and also purchasing other data sets and combining them to discover whether their female customers were pregnant or not, and then directing marketing to those women based on the fact that they thought they were pregnant. It was a very accurate algorithm, in fact. And in doing that, they're creating personal information about people, revealing it to their marketing department, and then sending these women you know, marketing material in the mail that says, would you like to buy maternity clothes, when you may not have even told your family that you're pregnant. I mean, this is very deeply personal information. So for us, there are these, these concerns, and also concerns about exclusion from services based on predictions made about people, that if a company doesn't want a group of people to be their customers, they may end up being excluded from buying, for example, banking services or insurance because of assumptions or predictions that are being made about them through this data. Angel, I just wanted to come back to you on, on that same point from a policy perspective and also the risks. I mean, do you agree with what Anna says or do you think actually there are other concerns that you'd like to raise or, or you just don't think it's a problem? Yeah, I think that the concerns that Anna brought up are certainly valid, but I think apply to environment, the benefits still 
outweigh the the potential downside. So, for example, in academic research, we have institutional review boards for human subjects research. So anytime any academic researcher wants to involve human subjects in a survey, for example, or collect data that could potentially be personal or harmful, the researcher signs on and it's reviewed by a panel of of experts to ensure that there's not going to be any potential harm to the human subjects being used. So I think that, yes, definitely these guidelines are lagging right now for big data because big data is just moving at the speed of lightning in some cases. And so I think that there definitely is now some discussion within the academic community, at least, to start to establish some of these guidelines to protect individuals who contribute big data. Um, So just an example of how I think that big data absolutely can help both the developing countries and developed countries better understand environmental pollution and sustainability, Um, we recently developed a global data set using satellite data to evaluate air quality and exposure to harmful air pollutants. And people in India, for example, because their government certainly lags in how much data they provide to the public and how transparent and how often they monitor air pollution, were shocked that their air pollution is just as bad as China, which we know gets a bad reputation in international media for having apocalyptic and absolutely hazardous levels of air pollution. And so now what we see is that citizens are going to the government and engaging NGOs and saying, we really feel like you need to be publishing and releasing better and more transparent air monitoring data because we see that it's harming our health. And we didn't realize that this was the situation before these researchers based in America released these data. So I think that that's a clear example of how um, even if you're not talking about user contributed data, there are other forms of big data from satellites, for example, that have an effect of democratizing this kind of information for all people all over the world to reveal really startling trends and conditions about environment. Um, I think Angel's exactly right that there are really amazing potential uses of big data and we're certainly not opposed to it as a as an idea. I think that she's also right that there needs to be more thinking about the ethical implications of data and its responsible use and really sort of we haven't yet entirely come to terms with what the massive expansion of data, you know, the fact it's going to be doubling every 20 months, what this really means in the future. Okay, and and Hugh, when it comes to businesses, you had Neil earlier saying, actually, companies need to treat customers and people respectfully so they don't lose them. And then Anna gave the example where actually they're abusing that data. So, So what's your advice to companies about how do you get that balance right between knowing all this information about customers and then wanting to relate to them and overstepping the mark and actually invading their privacy? Yeah, it's it, it is a tricky one. I think um, the particularly the the use of uh, individualized marketing data, and um, there are huge risks about the inappropriate use about invasive behaviour. Well, our advice would be, as well as obviously staying very much within the law on these things, our advice would be that ultimately uh, a, a sustainable brand, uh, which a company really needs to be successful in the long term, requires it to have the trust of of its customers and the various people that. Uh, whose path it crosses. So actually, the example that was given, which was um, kind of inappropriate, well, possibly not illegal, would, would not be really good brand building behaviour in the long term. So we would urge companies to think long and hard about all of the, the consequences of what they're doing. I think with the, the other side of the coin, which is more the aggregated supply chain data, there's probably, in general, less of an issue because that information can't really be tied back to individuals. Okay, it might mean that decisions are made about 
producing, making products in different ways with different materials, with possibly causing different products to be available or unavailable um, compared to where they are today. And that could have consequences, but it's not individualised. That's more to do with, if you like, the environmental impact of how products are made. So we see that as being a more, perhaps a more benign area of of data use. Okay, thank you. Toby? Just quickly on that, I think when Hugh mentions the capacity to understand the global supply chain, that's really valuable. I'd like these companies to release that kind of big data in the same way as they're very keen on accreting as much big data about everybody else as possible. I'd like to see international legislation that requires multinational corporations to make absolutely transparent where it is around the world that they get their conflict minerals that go into the cell phones that we buy, that make it absolutely transparent what the carbon footprint is of generating the iPads that they manufacture and sell or claim that they don't manufacture but simply market. I think that the quid pro quo for giving up aggregated, anonymized or individuated data on our part should be that we receive absolute transparency as workers as citizens, as consumers, on the part of participants in this global supply chain. That, for me, would be absolutely crucial. And in addition to that, given that these companies love to trade this information, remember, they're not giving it away. They're making money from it all the time, right? Whether we're talking about Google or Facebook or much smaller intermediaries that do data crunching. How about saying, on our part, if we are the objects and subjects of this data, actually... I'd like a payout, thanks very much. You want to use my experiences as a teenage driver in order to decide whether or not your actuarial tables about the risks of giving insurance to me as a driver are right or wrong? You want to know about how I participate in this particular electronic game online and you make me sign away the rights to my avatars, my ideas, my creativity, and the same applies to everybody else that can then be re-aggregated into the game? I'd like a payout, please. So there's got to be much more reciprocity if corporations want to have this absolutely open attitude to data, but not necessarily be as open themselves about what they do and specifically the environmental impact of their participation in big data. Okay, thank you. Um, Angel, I just wanted to bring you back here because we're talking about, on one level, making data more transparent, but obviously then we have the issue of sort of data security and also the government controlling large amounts of data. So obviously the, gov- uh, the Guardian led on the NSA, you know, all that information, sort of uh, the government collecting all this uh, extraordinary amount of people's personal information. I mean, where do you sit on this idea of how do you protect data, but also then how do you make it available? It, it could get very confusing. I mean, I wholly agree with Toby. I think that much of the conversation with respect to big data and businesses has been how can business benefit from big data, but there hasn't been enough conversation about how businesses can contribute to big data. And I think Coca-Cola is a really good example of a company that is starting to realize and contribute their big data, their proprietary data on water risk and water modeling, for example. So they've been working with a think tank based in Washington called the World Resources Institute to um, release the data that they collect and their operations in, in 200 countries around the world on water risk and water impact because it, it affects their business. In terms of government, I mean, I think that the conversation here about aggregation and absolutely allowing the aggregate data to anonymize individual users is definitely, um, the, the I think, uh, one, of the, one of the arguments for big data and for keeping and, and using
using big data and being a proponent for it. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's always the risk that there could be some exposures to personal privacy. And the real question is, um, we the, now is the time for us to work with governments to try to establish frameworks and guidelines for the fair and appropriate use of that data. Let's finish by looking at how big data can help us to understand and hopefully change our own behaviour. Hugh Jones, coming back to you, um, great to know how much energy it takes to boil a kettle, for example. But how can this data actually help people to change their own lives in a, in a, in a way that's meaningful? Sure. Uh, obviously, a, a kettle boiling is, um, well, almost literally a, a drop in the ocean. However, there is actually a, a purpose when a lot of these big numbers are aggregated together. So if I could just give a couple of quick examples. Uh, I'll talk about a very briefly about a, a, a business that we worked with, which was GlaxoSmithKline. We helped them to see that about 40% of, of their total supply chain footprint, which is a pretty huge footprint, was actually from, uh, from inhalers. Um, from Ventolin in, in particular. So as a result of that, they implemented a recycling scheme because they really care about this. And uh, the recycling rates of Ventolin inhalers has um, gone up by 80%. So actually, that's made a really major impact on uh, on GSK's emissions. And yet a, a single inhaler doesn't look like much to, a, to an individual person. On the kettle idea, perhaps I could just project forward to the, the so-called Internet of Everything, where things are going to be wired up to, to one another in our houses and our communities and delivery systems. Now, this may be some way in the future, but imagine if um, that kettle that I now know about was um, able to send back its data into the uh, so-called Internet of Everything so that perhaps, based on my usage patterns, my uh, electricity tariff could be modified without me necessarily having to actively do that um, to give me a better deal. Um, and also, perhaps, when my kettle was starting to struggle there could be a bit of preventative maintenance or even some advice about replacing it uh, and indeed some advice to me about incorrect use of my kettle. seems like a trivial example, but I think if, if data is used in the right way and in a way that provides genuine utility and benefit to customers, then it actually could be quite significant. Data is just facts and figures. People don't change their behaviour based on facts and figures. They change their behaviour based on stories and, and that they're inspired. So, so how do you see this link between actually you have the data, great, but actually how do you really bring that alive and actually really dramatically help change people's behaviour? You're absolutely right. When we get anxious about big data, which I frequently do, we have to remind ourselves that it, they're really just the latest exemplification of what we've had in the form of a census for millennia attempts by religious and state organisations to gather material about how many people there are and what their basic activities are and what their needs are in order to try to plan and meet those needs. Some of the, you know, I've just come back to Britain after over 20 years living in the United States, mostly in the United States, and there the paranoia about government whilst entirely understandable in the context of the NSA and really decades of malfeasance, is in many ways counterproductive because the libertarian side of Republican Party politics, for instance, fails to understand the incredible social utility in everything from medical to educational planning that comes from knowing how many people live in a city or a town, how old they are, and what their patterns of life are. So I don't want to be totally paranoid and anxious about this, even though sometimes I find myself sounding like that. There really are great forms of value, as everyone speaking today has shown, that can come from big data. The problem at the moment is, A, the hype. Le Monde recently said, called big data, how maths became sexy, for example. The New York Times, every couple of weeks, is publishing one or more articles saying, 
Thank God it's the end of the big data rhetoric. That was 2013. 2014, we've gone beyond it. We've transcended that. Companies are trying to work out whether they really need a big data guy or series of guys in non-gendered sense working for them, whether they should bring in outside experts. There's still a great deal of rhetoric about it. There isn't enough consideration of the kind of regulation we need. There isn't enough consideration of it, not just as a tool to manage environmental problems, but as a potential threat to the environment. Those questions need to be kept in play all the time. And they can't be answered through self-regulation by corporations. And they can't be answered by the usual oligarchies of big government, big data, big corporations sitting down and deciding. There needs to be a much more sort of flat structure, a more demotic structure of direct citizen participation in deciding how we want our resources and our data analysed and used. And and I'm coming to you on that because obviously the elites that want to stay in power, whether whether it's governments, whether it's companies, when you control information, you do have this extraordinary power over people. So, I mean, how worried are you about this balance between companies that can do good with it, but actually behind the scenes, they want to maximise profits, they're under pressure, they will do anything to keep that quarterly earnings going. I mean, how do you see that balance? And, and what actually, you know, picking up on that point about self-regulation rather than rules, how, how do we actually police all this? I think there's no obvious answer to the question of policing. I mean, there, been, there has been some discussion about developing um, this idea of um, procedural data due process where there would be a sort of adjudicative mechanism that you could go to to, to challenge when predictions are made about you. But it, the, the questions are is very difficult, and I think that we're still grappling with how we will actually resolve that. I think a lot of it relates to empowering people to understand how their data might be used so that we don't just blindly tick the box when something says you accept all the terms and conditions, which includes using, sharing, selling all your data. Creating more of a kind of discussion with companies and not being forced into automatic data sharing, as is the case now. So I would really echo a lot of what um, Toby has said on that point. And Angel, just to get a bit more on the sort of situation in America, because us Brits tend to be a bit cynical. And uh, I've noticed in America that people seem to trust business a lot more. I mean, do you think there's a certain naivety that is going to allow businesses and government sort of to get away with doing things that perhaps uh, in other countries there'd be much more sort of uh, uh, peer pressure and also also sort of control from citizens to prevent that happening. That's true. Um, I don't know about the naivety, but certainly American citizens were very shocked by the NSA revelations from Edward Snowden. And, and I think um, the general consensus was is that all of a sudden, we lost a huge amount of trust in our government. But that being said, you do have shining examples like New York City and Mayor Bloomberg, for example, he had a whole data geek squad to predict where disasters might happen within the city to better predict where gutter oil might be illegally being dumped into streets in New York City, and a whole host of other situations. And I think he definitely is the proof in the pudding that big data is absolutely essential for management. And going back to to Toby's point and and the hype surrounding big data, I think um, he's absolutely right that I think that many businesses should think about not necessarily big data, but just having data in general. So you can't manage what you don't measure. And so having a baseline and an understanding of where you stand on environmental issues, I think, is the first step in better managing. And so for cities, for businesses and and governments, I think that there's a general embrace in the United States for um, better information and the better management that comes along with it. And Bloomberg's legacy, I think, is now trickling to other cities within the U.S. I just read an article the other day that 
that in Baltimore, Maryland, they're also using big data and analytics to better um, predict crime. So, I mean, I think that it's going to be a trend, um, at least that will continue in the United States. I want to put the equivalent of a crystal ball in the middle of the table now, because I want to come to each of you to ask you that if we look ahead only sort of six years to 2020, given that, that things are moving so quickly, what is your biggest hope for what big data can achieve, but also what is your biggest fear? So, Toby, let's start with you. Biggest hope, biggest fear. Biggest hope is greater democratization of knowledge around the world about the world, and particularly greater knowledge on the part of ordinary people, in inverted commas, of how elites operate. That's my big hope. My big fear is that it'll be the opposite. How bad do you think it could get if this, if this sort of really wasn't policed? Well, on the one hand, in the case of authoritarian governments, really authoritarian governments, not the United States as a domestic entity, not Britain as a domestic entity, but the very large number of non-democratic countries there still are in the world, many of them supported by the United States and Great Britain, that there would be alliances between states and corporations that would see ordinary people's lives made putty. Within the so-called developed world or the large industrial and post-industrial democracies, my concern would be more that corporations attain additional legitimacy in the minds of the public and in the minds of those in bureaucracy as the real guardians of truth, that they are the sources of knowledge, they are the future of knowledge, and places like universities and non-government organizations and social movements and trade unions are irritants as are regulations. Remember, regulations can be derided as bureaucratic nonsense, or they can be understood as an expression of democratic will. And my concern is that the real work of big data in five or six years' time might be, in a sense, a downplaying of that notion of government regulation on behalf of citizens as being an expression of democratic will and a re-emphasis of a tendency that we've already seen, namely that corporations represent the good of all. Thank you. Anna, hopes and fears? I think my, my greatest hope would be that there is this direct citizen participation that Toby spoke about and that we understand how data impacts on our lives and that everyone is really part of that discussion. Greatest fear, I think, is probably that people may decide to accept pervasive surveillance as a fact of life and that not, that this discussion doesn't happen and we end up in a minority report type world. Hugh Jones, from, from a, particularly from a business perspective, hopes, fears? I think biggest hope is that um, businesses are fully educated in the environmental impacts of their products and services, but that most of all, that the power in, in actually affecting change devolves more to the consumers and the people who buy those products. And one really good outcome would be, particularly in the area of food production, would be to see um, more power go to local production of food, um, smaller agriculture um, in, in ways which is more um, environmentally benign, and that being pulled through via big distributing businesses to, to end consumers who buy the products. That would be a great outcome. Um, I think my concern is um, perhaps similar to, to, to some of my, my colleagues here. I think it would be that data is used really to oppress, whether that oppression is done by uh, elites, by governments, by corporations, or, or by anybody really. And uh, it would be that uh, it acts really against the interests of people in the world. Great. And Angel, you get the last word. What are your hopes okay. and fears? 
I, I would say my greatest hope is for universal transparency with respect to big data amongst all actors and all contributors to big data. So I think that that will facilitate the universal participation that we've been speaking about. And I would say my greatest fear is that we allow for big data to start to ask the interesting questions that we should be asking. So I hope that we remain in the driver's seat and we don't allow big data, which we know will grow exponentially on a daily basis, to start to ask the questions for us, but that we very much remain in the driver's seat and that we continue to start with the questions and then ask how the data might facilitate answering those. Yes, so let's hope we don't end up in that science fiction world where where we are controlled by the machines. Exactly. (laughs) My thanks to all of our guests who were Neil Dunn, Toby Miller, Anna Crow, Hugh Jones and Angel Sue. Remember, you can continue this discussion on our site. Go to theguardian.com forward slash sustainable business. My name is Joe Confino. The producer was Matt Hill with research by Hannah Fern and Sarah Lebrecht. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.